Welcome to Brand Levert. We are delighted to be rejoined by Travis Timmerman, and we're going to be talking about the philosophy of film. Travis, would you like to start with the thought experiment? Yeah. So I'd like to start with a real life case about the ethics of appreciating art from someone that's done morally monstrous things and is likely a moral monster themselves, even to this. And this case is interesting for a few reasons. One, it's a real life case. So it's not purely hypothetical. Two, it has some features that you see throughout lots of other cases that have been public news recently, but they're more extreme. And three, they have some unique features that highlight some potentially morally relevant variables that would allow us to think about different versions of cases like this, like exist on a spectrum of goodness to badness and how we might want to treat them the same or different. So the case that I have in mind is that of Roman Polanski. Many of your viewers probably know who he is. He's one of the, I think, unquestionably most talented living filmmakers. And he had a pretty horrific life for a while. That gives him a fairly unique perspective as well. That combined with his filmmaking talent allows him to produce art that's not fungible. That is not something that other filmmakers would easily be able to replicate, even if they're equally talented. So in Polanski was born in France in the early 1930s, and then his family moved uh, back to Poland, where they're from. And he saw the Nazis invade Poland. He then was forced to live in a Polish uh, ghetto. He saw his mother be taken away to a concentration camp where she, to Auschwitz, where she was killed. He saw his father taken away and tried to you know, go talk to him and see what was happening as his father was being taken away by Nazis and his father shoot him away to protect his son's life. He saw Jewish soldiers, I'm sorry, Nazi soldiers kill Jewish people around him as a very young child witnessed his murder, the ghetto, and then was taken in by a brave Catholic family who risked their life to pretend that he was their uh, Catholic kin and managed to survive the war that way. Then he rose to prominence as an extremely talented filmmaker, making Polish films in the 1950s and then full-length ones in the early 1960s, went to the U.S., made Rosemary's Baby, which is widely considered to be a wonderful uh, work of art, took an adaptation of a kind of pulpy horror novel, and he turned it into something that's considered high art. Married actress Sharon Tate, who then was pregnant with their child and was killed by some members of Charlie Manson's family in 1960. It continued, persevered through that as well, and continued to make art. But then in 1977, or maybe it was 1978, I think it was 1977, 1978, he was taking photos of a young, young girl, I believe was 13 at the time, and raped her. Violet gave her alcohol, he gave her quality, and raped her in spite of her protest. One of the most horrific things that you can do. This was widely publicized in the media. He, after serving a brief time in jail, this uh, girl, Samantha Geimer, now a woman, and uh, her legal team and Polanski's legal team had come to a plea agreement. So when Polanski was coming back, accept the deal, both team's lawyers informed him that the judge had decided to renege on the plea agreement and that 
who's going to go to jail for a long time. So then he fled the country and has lived outside of the U.S. to avoid extradition since then. But he has continued to make films throughout his career, including films that were considered classics long after those that happened. Perhaps most notably is the film The Pianist, starring Adrian Brody, Adrian Brody, sorry, that is based on a memoir of a real-life Holocaust survivor. And it was filmed in some areas in Poland where Wlanski had grown up and witnessed the Holocaust firsthand. So that is considered one of the best films about World War II. It's hard for me to imagine that any other artist could have made that film since he had this firsthand experience and the technical talent that almost no one in the 2000s had. It was widely critically acclaimed, but also extremely controversial, given the fact that he'd done this morally monstrous thing. Now, one interesting thing about the case is the woman that he raped, who was a girl at the time, but was a woman in the 2000s, Samantha Geimer, had come out and said she publicly forgave him, that he had been punished for what he did, that the constant media attention on her had hurt her more than Polanski's actions and that she encouraged people explicitly to vote for an award ceremonies based on merit solely and not on Polanski's law. So I think this race raises a host of interesting questions. So one question we can ask is whether it's morally permissible to give Polanski the resources to make these films. Another we could ask is whether you should reward him. Once the film has already been made, if you're a member of uh, a voting body for some award ceremony, whether the moral character of the artist should factor into the rankings that you give for your votes at all. Another we can ask is whether it's more permissible to financially support the film by renting it. Or in the United States, it's on Netflix right now. So if I wanted, I could pull up Netflix and play it, and that would in some way support his film career, even if it's not actually putting money in his pocket. Another thing we could ask is if we could watch the film without supporting him in any way, which is quite easy. I could go buy a VHS or DVD copy of it secondhand without putting any money in his pocket or enhancing his film career in any way. Is it permissible to enjoy it? Or is there something objectionable about just appreciating a fine piece of art if it's made by him? Is there any likelihood in either your financial support of Polanski or your enjoyment, that any further harms will ensue? And I would think not. In other words, what we have is someone who did a monstrous thing almost 50 years ago, but there's no indication that Polanski has an ongoing desire to rape 13-year-old girls or that he's using any of the profits to perform further harms. I think the other question is around what punishments ought to look like. And so there's some sense that he has evaded justice because he's lived in exile, although there's a sense in which Exile is a fate worse than death, that it's, it's had a crippling effect on his reputation, his career, and his ability to make films uh, because he can't return to America. He has made films, and Americans have participated in those films, but they've had to be filmed in other countries. But there is some sense in which he has suffered a rebuke, but not one through law, that there's still, the Americans would be quite keen to extradite him. But when we are allocating rewards for art, it seems to be based on, it's not based on someone's character. And if those awards start to change in their nature, in other words, we're not giving an award because 
you're a, a wonderful director, we're giving you an award because you're a wonderful guy. Then we start to have reason to say, well, we should be withholding those, those awards. With respect to the first question, Polanski's in his late eighties now, I believe, and been married for decades. And there doesn't seem to be an indication that he, uh, would use his influence to rape anyone else. But that doesn't mean that supporting him isn't going to further the harm of anyone else. Okay. So it could be the case. I mean, at the time that the pianist came out, Samantha Geimer was the only person who had claimed to have been raped uh, by Polanski. And I mean, there's no doubt. All right. Sorry, let me just back up and rephrase that. Cause I don't want to say claimed as if I'm expressing doubt about the accuracy of your unquestionably guilty. At the time that the pianist came out, Samantha Geimer was the only person who was known to have been raped by Polanski. But since then, just in the last few years, there's been multiple other women who said that they've had similar encounters where Polanski had also either sexually assaulted them or raped them. So further supporting his films and giving him awards. That could, I imagine, be traumatic for people that he's assaulted in the past. And it could be traumatic for people who are completely unaffiliated with Polanski, but know that he's a rapist and seeing accolades given to a very well-known rapist uh, might uh, seem to them to convey a lack of serious concern for the rocket. So Mark is asking a utilitarian question here, right? So he's asking, well, will the support of Polanski and his films involve some sort of consequence, some negative consequence? And yep. you're spelling out how it may, right? Let's vary the case slightly and let's just assume that it wouldn't have any negative consequence. So let's say that his only victim died, right? And let's say there are no others and it was a once-off event. I'm not saying this was the case. I'm just saying, let's assume that. And really we, we boil the question down to, is there a problem with supporting his work because he did X, even if my support won't result in something similar to X happening again, is his misdeed somehow buried in the work and by, by supporting the work, we were supporting the misdeed. My favorite normal ethical view is some type of consequentialism. Not exactly utilitarianism, but it's in the vein of that view. So if we're imagining a hypothetical case where there are no negative consequences to supporting the uh, work of an artist who's done more of the terrible things, then I think it would be clearly permissible to support the work of that artist, assuming that there aren't better alternatives that come at a comparably small cost. That said, it doesn't mean that you can necessarily separate the artist and their artwork. So in the case of Polanski, I think there's a very sort of clear separation between the kind of monstrous person that he is as an individual, or at least was at the time and the art that he produces. But in other cases, you might not think that these things come apart so clearly. So, um, 
you think about Lenny Reifenstahl's propaganda film, Triumph of the Will, that was glorifying Nazis. I mean, it was very clearly the intent. It was an extremely technically innovative film. And some of the stuff that she had done in that movie developed film techniques that are widely used today. But if someone says, I really like Triumph of the Will because I appreciate the kind of aerial shots that she invented, I would be extremely skeptical that they're explaining the true motivation for liking the film. So, so one thing is if the artist's morally reprehensible worldview is an essential component of the film, even if it's permissible to watch it, if it doesn't actually hurt anyone, and I think it can be permissible to watch if it doesn't hurt anyone, it might display a sort of like viciousness of character. It's going to depend why you're engaging with that type of art in question, right? Even if you're doing something that's probably permissible, it might be indicative of a bad character. And the more that the artist's immoralities infuse in the work, the more that's an essential component of the work, the more skeptical that I would be for someone who claims to only like it for perfectly morally innocuous reasons. doesn't mean, uh, there aren't possible cases where that happens, but just in real life, I would be more skeptical. And we can push this case, right? So it seems like those aerial shots being very impressive are incidental to the subject matter of Nazism, but we can imagine, let's say a serial murderer who creates incredibly impressive, aesthetically impressive, gory movies because they're very good at this, right? In their everyday life and their character as a murderer and their actions as a murderer is imbued in the film in a way that no other serial murderer could create that film. Uh, I mean, there's, there's Stephen, Stephen King books about this, about authors who express their deepest, darkest desires through their books, through their horror books. And he writes books about authors who become murderers through their books. And so, but when people read those books, they're like, this is incredible. This represents murder in a way no one else has done. So there you've got the character really built in, right? So you just cannot separate it out. And yet it could be good art. It could be a good book or a good film. And yet there is definitely something morally weird going on there. So this raises a couple of interesting issues. So one is whether art that is endorsing a morally reprehensible viewpoint can have other good making features that outweigh it. I think there's real life cases where that clearly happens and that even if there aren't real life cases, we should see that it's clearly a principle possible. Another question that it raises is whether, uh, endorsing a morally reprehensible viewpoint is a bad making feature of art and then natural thought that a lot of moralists have is that yes, of course, all else being equal, a uh, piece of art that endorses or promotes something that's morally atrocious detracts from the quality of art. It's not just morally bad. It makes the art less good, but there's a sort of weird asymmetry, uh, where we don't think that promoting a morally good view enhances the quality of the art. At least most people don't seem to think that that's the case. And then there's also this nice illustration about how the intentions of the artist can come apart sharply from what the people who are appreciating the art see. So in the cases you described it, I'm imagining there's like one natural interpretation is that the people that are reading these horror novels, uh, or watching these horror films are thinking, you know, 
this, as Roger Ebert said, is like an empathy machine. It's really giving us an insight into what it would be like to be a murderer, to be a victim of these heinous purposes. And that can be a really valuable aesthetic experience. But they're probably not endorsing the content of what they're doing, and they're probably not even assuming that the author is endorsing this evil content either. And if that's the case, then there doesn't seem to be anything vicious about their appreciation of this art, even though there is something sort of vicious about the art itself, because it was made with the intent to try to promote something that's grossly immoral. But that's just not something that's coming across on the page or coming across on the screen uh, to the viewers. So, so I think it's worth saying, like, whether it's permissible to uh, make this art and whether that's permissible or not depends on how good or bad the consequences are. And then we can talk about the virtues or vices of the artist in question in making that art, which isn't necessarily the same thing as whether it's permissible to make the art or not. And then the virtues and vices of the people that are appreciating the art, and then the moral permissibility of the people, the moral permissibility of appreciating and not appreciating the art in various ways. It seems to me that when we're making assessments of the work or of the artist, that they're going to be of two different normative sets. The one is going to be ethical considerations, and the other one will be aesthetic considerations. And what's interesting is, of course, when those two things dovetail, when an ethical defect in the work could affect our aesthetic enjoyment of it. And so I imagine this situation, which is that you walk into a gallery and you're standing in front of this landscape picture and you're, you're admiring the work and you're describing its sort of effect on you or the brushstrokes. And someone says, what do you think of the work? And you say, well, I think it's quite a beautiful work. And you describe why, and you give all the sort of aesthetic reasons for why it is a, a good work and um, a beautiful work. And they say to you, by the way, this was painted by Hitler. And now it becomes very hard for you to enjoy it. Um, you say, I, I don't think I can have the same kind of uh, assessment of the work. But all those aesthetic features are present in the work, regardless of the creator. Another variant is that you walk into the gallery and just as you're about to look up at a painting, you stub your toe and you're in pain and you can't appreciate the work because of the pain that you feel. And you might think, well, that's not a problem of the work. That's a problem with your internal state, that there's something which is blocking your aesthetic enjoyment of it that's external to the work, and it's not the work's fault. You might think that that's what's going on with work made by an evil creator. In other words, if you're unable to enjoy the works of Roman Polanski because of the knowledge that you have, it's not the work's fault. It's these extrinsic facts that make it harder for you to enjoy. The cases where I think it's more difficult are where the work asks you to um, do something immoral in order to enjoy them and that the work itself makes it hard to enjoy it aesthetically. So there's a, a work of art made by a Spanish artist where he tied a dog to a wall of a gallery and he placed a bowl of water out of its reach. And basically, if no one intervened, the dog would dehydrate to death. Now there's some sense in which there is a moral culpability that's going on with, with the, the viewers of the art. And you might think that it becomes very impossible to enjoy the work because it requires you to endorse something like the maltreatment of animals and therefore has an aesthetic defect. Or you might think a, a work of art that requires you to believe certain things in order to enjoy it. And those beliefs are themselves immoral. And there's a sense in which you can have a mock belief. So I think when we're watching certain kinds of horror movies, you, you can root for the serial killer. You can say, I really hope he goes and slashes all those teenagers to death. But it's a sort of uh, imaginative state that you put yourself into. You would never wish that of a real killer, 
but you think it's okay given the rules of this world to root for Jason or Freddy, um, because the, the Hollywood morality is different to ordinary morality. So there's a question as to what you're actually being asked to do under the certain conditions and whether that could have a role in undermining the aesthetics of the work. The immorality of an artist affecting your ability to focus on the aesthetically good features of the art is exactly right. And the example that you used was a good one. There's actually a comedian named Stephen Colbert, might've heard of him that used to have this show where he was mocking other like Fox news type sites. And he had a guest on it, it goes Steve Martin, and he was showing him pictures of Hitler's art, the like landscapes that Hitler had painted when he was an aspiring art student, asking Steve Martin whether he liked them without revealing that it was Hitler. And I think he was trying to get Steve Martin to say he enjoyed them and say, oh, you like paintings by Hitler. But it seems very clear that whatever the aesthetic, the good features of that piece of art were, and my naive understanding is they were not particularly good landscapes, but yeah, we could imagine that they were. Those aren't changed by the fact that they were made by one of the most evil people to have ever existed. But it's true that if I had the knowledge that Hitler had painted those, I just wouldn't be able to focus on anything else except why they were painted and the person who had painted them. And that's just, that would just be at the forefront of my mind and make it very difficult for me to pay attention to the non-moral aesthetic features of that. So I really, yeah, do think that's just not something that should be factored into the quality of the art itself. But the harder cases that you mentioned where appreciating a piece of art requires doing an immoral action. I'm inclined to agree with you there as well. Though I, I'd heard about this piece of performance art with that starving dog title. My understanding though, is that that was meant to like raise awareness about the suffering of street dogs. That was a pervasive problem. I think it's still a pervasive problem now, but it was definitely a pervasive problem at the time. And I thought the motivation was to try to get people to feel empathy for them and then do something about the larger problem. Even if this one dog right now is suffering, but we can imagine cases where appreciating the art does really require performing an immoral act. And my own view is that the only sort of value in the world is going to be uh, moral value that affects the well-being of more than considerable creatures. So if there's a moral value at stake and an aesthetic value at stake, I just think that the moral value is going to outweigh the aesthetic value every single Aesthetic value, I think, is extrinsically valuable. It matters insofar as it's affecting the well-being of more creatures. But if we really are faced with getting some aesthetic value, but making no moral difference, not affecting the well-being of more suitable creatures at all, or doing something that's morally valuable, I think the moral value is going to just necessarily win out every single time. Now, the, the last thing I'll say is there's an interesting detachment that happens when we engage in fictional works, whether that's films, television, novels, or video games, where you even have something closer to like agency about what happens in this fictional world, where people will root for bad things to happen. So the more they be creatures, they will in video games, just murder innocent people willy nilly, but there doesn't seem to be anything necessarily wrong 
about that because they know that their actions aren't actually affecting any more than simple creatures. And in many cases, but not all, the things that they do don't seem to reflect any attitudes that they have about people in the real world, right? So if I'm playing a video game and I'm driving a car and running over pedestrians, that's not plausibly any evidence that I am callous to the well-being of pedestrians in the real world. I just know that it's a fictional video game. But there are other cases that are uh, more complicated and maybe closer to the example of the time the dog right but that concerns solely fictional characters so here's a film that i uh think is a brilliant black comedy um called four lions i don't know if you've heard of it almost no one heard about this movie oh okay. you're one of the few people in the world that's heard about it stars riz ahmed who won an oscar for an incredible performance in the sound of metal last year but the setup of this black comedy is there are four aspiring terrorists who are Muslims in the United Kingdom, but it's played as sort of like they're dim-witted goofballs who are really inept at carrying out their acts of terrorism. And it came out five years after the London, the 2005 London bombings. And the way that the film is set up is to try to make you empathize with them. I mean, they're buffoons and it's not condoning the actions of terrorism. It's clearly a satire, but nevertheless, the, they want you to be invested in the characters, including Riz Ahmed's character. And he's portrayed as being a loving father and husband, and in some ways being more progressive about women than his more conservative Muslim brother, who is trying to convince him not to commit acts of terrorism. So very clearly tries to make you empathize and get invested in these characters' ability to commit or get to terrorism. And it was very controversial for that reason. Now, unlike the case of tying the dog up in a museum, this doesn't actually require appreciating this piece of art, doesn't actually require doing something that's going to hurt more than considerable being. So like appreciating the piece of art where the dog is tied up as you're imagining, it requires letting this dog start. That's going to have a more than bad outcome. But just watching and enjoying four lines, that doesn't actually require harming any more than considerable being, but you still might worry that it's cultivating some sort of uh, vicious attitude uh, or that there's something objectionable in and of itself about empathizing with or rooting for, even in a fiction, someone to commit a horrific act of terrorism. I want to object to your position, if I understand it correctly, that morality always trumps aesthetics. So it seems to me like there's certain cases where morality and aesthetics obviously conflict. So one, for example, is Picasso, who, if I remember correctly, left his family in order to pursue his career. And they were very resentful of this, at least in the story I remember. And if it's not the story, then let's just assume it was the story. So leaves his family to pursue a career in art and becomes the great artist that he became partly at the cost of his family. On your, on your view, he should not have done so, right? Because morality trumps aesthetics. But it's not just those kind of cases, which perhaps your intuitions might go one way or the other on. It's, I think, every case, because I cannot imagine an instance where 
you could be spending time creating art that you might not be spending that time improving the lives of others. So this is, the, this is a Susan Wolf's argument, moral saints. She basically says, well, especially for the utilitarian or the consequentialist, any time that you could be drawing a painting or writing a novel or filming a film, you could be spending that time feeding starving children. And there will be some children somewhere that are starving and you could be spending that time feeding them. And so on your view, you should never create art. So in the actual world, I think I can avoid the implication that we should never create art. But we can certainly imagine possible worlds where my moral view is going to tell that we should never create art. But I'm happy to bite the bullet in those worlds. It doesn't seem like a bullet to bite once we really get clear on the conditions that would have to be in place for it to be impermissible to ever. So first, let me address the Picasso example. I don't think there's just aesthetic value at stake in Picasso producing art, right? There's moral value as well. He became a great artist whose works are widely appreciated today, and that doesn't look like it's going to change anytime soon. So he produced a great deal of moral value insofar as he enhances the well-being of all the people that appreciate his art. So I think I can say that about any artist whose art we'd want to preserve. The cases that would arise where there's just a conflict of aesthetic value and moral value would be when the production of aesthetic value doesn't produce any moral value or produces comparably less moral value than what they could be doing if they spent their time doing something. So you know, could imagine that Picasso has the opportunity to lead his family and produce great works of art, but he can only do it in a remote area that no one else will ever get to see or appreciate the art that he produces. And let's suppose it brings him no joy whatsoever to produce this art. It's just neutral for him or it's the same amount of prudential value as if he were staying with this. Now, some people think that that art would be intrinsically valuable. Just if there's something beautiful in the world, that makes the world a better place, even if there's no one to see or appreciate that beauty. And my view is that that's not intrinsically valuable at all. I think good art matters only insofar as it affects the well-being of one of the simple creatures. And that that would be a case where he would be producing something that has aesthetic value, but the moral value would just outweigh. Now, does this mean no one in the actual world should ever produce art because they could always be doing something that would help people more. I don't think that's true for a couple of reasons. One, if everybody made it their mission to try to end global poverty and they coordinated in the right way, we could do that pretty easily. I mean, Singer works this out in the light you can say about forget what the exact number is. And it's something like if people in affluent nations gave $500 or $1,000 one time, and we coordinated in the right sort of way, we could end global poverty forever, right? So if everyone really were trying to be good utilitarians and they were reasonably good at figuring out what's gonna bring about the best consequences, then we could end global poverty and raise the level of welfare for lots of creatures. And then I think plausibly producing art at that point would be required to maximize utility because art is so meaningful in so many people's lives, the vast majority of humans, if not uh, the vast majority of humans. Art is an extremely important component 
of what makes their life good. Um, the other thing to say is that on possible utilitarian views that we have to talk about what would be good at two levels. One, we can ask what would be good for an individual to do given the way that other people in the world are acting. And then another thing we can ask is what would be a good sort of general policy? So maybe each individual thinking about how to act now, they could do more good by not producing art. But that's holding fixed the fact that there's plenty of other people who aren't going to act like utilitarians and they're going to continue creating art in the world. So they, they thinking about what they should do at the individual level, maybe no individual eventually decide to, sorry. But if we had a social policy that we we're trying to implement that says no one should produce art and they should always focus on trying to alleviate uh, famine or disease or depression or anything else that detracts. That would be a very costly rule to enforce that almost certainly would maximize utility. That would be very ineffective to try to enforce. That would make the world a lot worse if everybody did indeed act on that rule. So I just think we should have a social policy, even on utilitarian grounds, that strongly encourages people to choose creative art. And that's going to make the world much better than if we try any alternative rule. The original way that I understood your position was that morality acts like a side constraint. So in other words, it's impermissible to create certain kinds of art if in order to do so, you have to do something wrong. But I now understand your position differently, which is it's permissible insofar as it's overall right. In other words, you can do a bit of harm if overall you're going to get a net benefit. So let's return to uh, Mr. Polanski and let's change the facts a little bit. Let's imagine that Polanski says, look, I'm going to be honest. The only way that I was able to make the litany of incredible films that I made that literally no one else could have made. Chinatown is going to be regarded as one of the greatest films ever made. I mean, he's had an unbelievable career for nigh on 50 years. He says, I'm going to let you in a little secret, which is that the only way that I'm able to do it is by molesting children. He says, I have this deep, deep anxiety, which stops me from creating art. And the only way that I can resolve it is basically with this dungeon that I have. And I molest these kids. I only need to molest one a year. And I then, if you want, I'll, I, I give them a pull so they forget about it. But I have to molest them. It's the only way that I can make the art. And there are so many people that love my art. And I bring so much joy to the world. So much <laughs> positive utility. And let's assume for the sake of argument that the amount of pleasure outweighs the suffering that the little kiddies feel when they're being molested. And as I say, we can do other things to ameliorate it. You can have them passed out if you want so they don't subjectively experience the suffering. But he's undoubtedly molesting these young kids. You then have to say, well, I guess that's the right thing for Mr. Polanski to do, to molest those girls. Otherwise, we'd be robbed of all this wonderful art. Yeah. So I was thinking about some of the questions you might ask me during this interview. Uh, and this was not on the list of ones that I've <laughs> been asked. <laughs> so here's my off-the-cuff response. I don't think that I have to say that, given the way that things are in the actual world. But you can certainly push me on faraway possible worlds where things are very different. But let me first say why I don't think that I have to say that in the actual while it's true that Polanski creates art that I don't think anyone else could create and that he's one of the most talented living filmmakers and likely one of the most talented filmmakers to ever exist. The amount of value 
that he creates is determined by the amount of, not just the amount of good that people get from appreciating the art, but the amount of value that he creates is going to come from the difference in the amount of good that people get from appreciating his art compared to the amount of good that they would get were his art not available. And even though he's a great artist, and even though the aesthetic value that he creates is not fungible, the amount of moral value that he creates is. So there's lots of great artists. There's lots of people who would be making movies were they not funding Polanski's films. And if they weren't watching Polanski's films, they'd watch something else, but they would probably enjoy roughly as much. So I think in the actual world, he produces very little net benefit, maybe no net benefit at all. And then that's just, you're not going to be able to justify doing even remotely bad things, much less constantly molesting children throughout his career in order to produce good art. Now you can say there's still a problem with my view because hypothetically we could imagine a case where there's no other one, no one else available who can produce such great art and there's no alternatives available for people to get as much joy out of it. And any sort of consequentialist view is going to be committed to saying that you can cause, sorry, let me backtrack. Any standard consequentialist view is going to be committed to the claim that you can cause great harm to one innocent individual in order to produce a lot of other good. And I find that Pramapesha as counterintuitive as I think anyone else does, but I'm inclined to accept it for theoretical reasons, because any way around that, I think is going to commit you to things that seem even more problematic and even more counterintuitive. But there's another sort of underlying issue there as well. And that is that the amount of good that's being produced is spread out over a large group of people. And you might think that amount of good is of minimal value for each of them. So in analogous cases, you might wonder whether you could kill an innocent person in order to prevent a very, very large number of people from suffering very mild headaches. Right, so, we just, so it's not just you're causing an innocent person to suffer to bring about some really good outcome. It seems to be true in this case that you're causing an innocent person to suffer to be harmed, even if they don't suffer in order to bring about an outcome that's minimally good for a very large. And I also find it extremely counterintuitive to suggest that it could be permissible to kill a person in order to prevent billions of people from having mild headaches. But any alternative is going to, any way around that is going to necessitate, as far as I can tell, committing to other moral principles that are even more absurd. I think this is just a problem with us comprehending large numbers of people. You don't really fully appreciate the difference between helping a thousand people and 10,000 people or a million people and 10 billion. The way that we've evolved is to not sort of understand those differences in large numbers. So I think that's just a cognitive defect that people have. So I'm just going to bite the bullet on that too and say, yeah, in principle, it can be okay to cause very serious harm to one individual to prevent very small amounts of harm to very, very, very large groups of other individuals. And this just seems like a, to follow straightforward really from that.
So the problem with this response is that it contradicts the previous response to the Picasso case. In the Picasso case, it seems like if Picasso didn't pursue his art, even though a lot of people really appreciated his work, it seems like, well, there would have been another artist who they appreciated instead. So on the counterfactual, in the counterfactual world where Picasso didn't pursue his art, it seems like everyone who did enjoy his art wouldn't have suffered a net loss or very little net loss. And so you can't substantiate why it was okay for him to become an artist at the cost of his family. Because in that counterfactual world, his family wouldn't have suffered. They would have reaped the benefits of him staying home and supporting them. So you can't really run both, both responses. Yeah, excellent. Okay, good. So what I'd want to say then is just, it, if that's true, it's impermissible uh, for Picasso to leave his family, become an artist. Right. And now it seems like here's the crux of the issue is by reducing aesthetic value to as extrinsic to moral value or to well-being or to happiness that's produced, it seems you're missing out on a genuine conflict here, right? So it, it, it seems that in some cases there's a genuine conflict between the amount of aesthetic value produced by either a piece of art or an artist versus the well-being or suffering that he produces. And by saying that aesthetic value is just extrinsically value, it's only valuable insofar as it produces well-being, seems to miss that, that, that conflict. Because a lot of people intuitively would want to say, well, even if we hold all the facts true that you're claiming, even if it is true that a lot of people enjoyed Picasso, but they would have enjoyed someone else. And even if it is true that, let me just, let me just re rephrase that. Even, even if it's true, even if all the empirical claims are true here, it seems like there's still something very valuable that would be lost in a world where Picasso's work didn't exist. And what would be lost is not people's net enjoyment of art generally, but that those pieces of work wouldn't be there. And that seems like a genuine loss of value. I'm not saying that that value is out, it, it outweighs the moral values involved, but I'm just saying you have to say that there is something in and of itself that's been lost. With Mark's question, I feel like I'm having to bite a bullet. Uh, with your question, I think everyone's going to think that I'm having to bite a bullet, but perhaps given my weird theory laden judgments. It just doesn't seem like a cost at all to me to say, yeah, Picasso shouldn't have created art. And it's true. We're losing a sort of aesthetic value, an aesthetic value that no one else would be able to realize. But who cares if it's not actually reducing the net total well-being of more than considerable creatures? I just don't even, I don't even feel a conflict there if we don't have the art of Picasso. Now, part of what I would suspect is influencing people's first sort of judgments about this case is that we know about Picasso and they've seen his art and they feel a particular attachment to his art. They admire it. That becomes part of their identity. I mean, I don't personally like the art of Picasso. It doesn't even look like the things they're supposed to look like. Maybe that's the issue here, right? Okay. Maybe the issue is you don't like his art, but you can yeah, just switch out Picasso for any given artist. Right? Yeah. Work you do like. Yeah. I mean, I, I kid about Picasso's art being bad. I, I like Picasso's art just fine. But we, we, that's the wrong way to look at it. The wrong way to look at it is, in retrospect, have we appreciated this art and has it contributed to the value of the life and contributed to the concept of our identity 
and the type of person that we think of ourselves at today. Then when we imagine the counterfactual world, if I didn't like Picasso's art, and then there was some other morally good person who didn't have to leave their family and they produced completely different art that I would have enjoyed just as much, that changes your conception of your identity and people have what Liz Harmon calls sort of reasonable attachment to the actual, they care about the type of being that they are now, they prefer to have the sort of personality and character traits that they have now over very different ones, even if they would be just as happy and well off with those different personality traits. So when we're thinking about whether some artist should leave their family to produce their art or not, or do something else immoral to produce their art or not, we have to think about it in a forward, not backward looking way. Because they haven't yet produced the art, it's not creating an attachment for their fans that are influencing the personal identity that they have. And prior to that happening, they're not going to have that attachment for care, right? So if I could watch one of two films and I know that both of them I'll enjoy, you know, the same amount and they're equally good pieces of art and they'll both influence my personality in important ways, I'll be indifferent in a forward-looking way. But after I choose one of those films to watch and then it influences the type of person I'm from, if I'm psychologically typical after the fact, I'll be glad that I watched that film rather than some, some different. So I think uh, the problem is that when people are imagining these cases, they're uh, looking at it from the perspective of someone who already appreciates and cares deeply about the artist in question. And that's the wrong way to look at it. We have to look at it in this forward-looking way and take away any sort of personal attachments that people have. One way we could do the assessment is we compare two worlds. One in which um, Picasso never leaves his family, becomes a family man and paints people's houses um, and never creates any of the great work that he does. And the other one in which, the world in which we live, in which all that Picasso work is there. And we just compare the states of affairs between those worlds and we do the utility calc and we decide whether the one is preferential to the other. The other one is, as you say, well, once you have formed an attachment to an artist, you start to value it and people have this particular relationship with them. We recognize the value. And it seems like that would have considerations for how you ought to treat an artist, let's say, after the fact. So for example, if everyone takes a view that Picasso was a, a moral monster, how dare he have left his wife and we ought not to enjoy any Picasso work anymore. And we ought to stop other people from enjoying Picasso's work by banning it. So all galleries should be mandated to hand over their Picassos. They get burnt in a fire. We destroy all other books that mention Picasso. And we do this for all other kinds of immoral art. Whatever other immoral art you want to lump into the fire, we sort of destroy it because we say this would be endorsing people's monstrous behavior, whatever vicious character traits they had. We were, by the way, already seeing some of this. So Faulty Towers, for example, had been banned because there's a allegedly racist episode. Gone with the Wind was taken down from a streaming service. I think then later put up with a warning. But you know, there's plenty of art that is sort of subject to removal or sanction because our mores have shifted. And so I wonder about your perspective on this, which is when we do, let's say, the preventing of the work or when we think it's a good thing for the work to exist or whether we should say, well, given that the stuff is there, even if it is immoral and given that people enjoy it so much, we ought not to censor it. I mean, my bet is as a utilitarian, you can't ever have a, a line in the sand where you say, we can't do this stuff. You're always going to say, well, how many points are we going to get out of it? If it turns out that we can prevent a lot of people who seem very, very distressed by these episodes of Faulty Towers floating around and they just seem 
so much pain. I guess we should ban it. Or you say, well, long-term utility calcs, societies that burn books end up burning people. And so we definitely don't want to do that. I can draw a line in the stand. And that line is, does it produce a better outcome than any of the available alternatives? <laughs> right? So it's this general abstract principle that's going to determine the line. But what that means is that in any sort of first order case that we're considering, it's going to be highly context sensitive. It's going to depend on the type of people in question and what their personality traits are and how they would be affected by allowing this art to continue to exist or by destroying it. In the actual world, I think that attempts to suppress the work of immoral artists are almost always going to do more harm than good for a variety of reasons. So I think in the actual world, that's generally a bad idea. There'll be exceptions. And sometimes boycotts, while they're generally ineffective, are highly effective in certain cases. And in those cases, I think it's fine to boycott artists simply because it's going to bring about the best outcome, even if there's other artists that aren't being boycotted that have done equally terrible things, or they're equally culpable for the terrible things that they did. If the difference is one is going to hurt a lot of people, and the other is not, then I think that's actually a more irrelevant difference. I also think that's a better principle to stand on than the one that's often implicitly assumed in popular discussions about consuming the work of immoral artists. In popular discussions, at least when I see it played out in the media in the US, people often explicitly or implicitly appeal to some principle like, this person did a really morally heinous thing, and by appreciating the art, we'd be supporting someone who did something more than heinous. It's wrong to support someone that did something more than heinous. So it's wrong to support this sort of art. And the problem with that argument is that it would prove too much. Because if we applied the principle consistently of not supporting anyone who does something more than heinous, then it would be difficult, if not impossible, to appreciate any sort of art, to purchase any sort of consumer good, right? to engage in voluntary transactions that are going to improve our lives with almost anyone in the world. Not only because crimes that are rightly regarded as morally heinous are unfortunately and terribly widespread. Sexual assault is a horrific problem that the majority of women face and that a non-trivial number of men face and people of all genders. But there's also serious moral wrongs that are socially accepted that people aren't aware of now because of the moral blind spots. So I wonder if 50 years in the future when factory farming is a thing of the past, I think it's very likely to be a thing of the past 50 years from now. And factory farming hasn't been around that long. It started depending on how you categorize it, the late 60s, early 70s whether there'll be calls to boycott artists who financially supported factory farming or used factory farmed animals for craft services on the film production. I mean, that'll be almost all films. Right? So if we're, if we're applying this principle of not in any way financially supporting someone that's done something more than heinous, that would preclude engaging with almost anyone. So I don't think anyone actually accepts that principle on reflection. So what we need is some sort of way to adjudicate between cases where it's worth 
taking away support from some artists in cases where sort of given to them. And it can't just be about how bad the behavior is. It can't just be about how culpable the behavior is. I think the most plausible principle to appeal to is how good or bad the consequences are of supporting one piece of art versus another. So I can't draw a line in the sand in the typical way, but I think I can draw a principled line in the sand that's going to avoid the conclusion of preventing us from engaging in any sort of art that we care about. Look, you've given Mark an answer he won't like, right? Because Mark is against the idea of censorship full stop, as am I. But I, as, as a utilitarian, want to provide a reasoned view for how you could hold that position rather than your softer position, which is at least some of the time you could censor work. And, and that line would just be looking at the practice of censorship and its overall consequences in the long term. So if you do start to censor individual pieces of art, even if the short-term consequences for those censorships may be positive, a net positive utility gain, in the long term, artists may be, may be more reluctant to produce art at all and because they don't want to be the instances that get censored. And so in the long run, you might have quite a, quite a strong negative utility consequence. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's one reason on the actual world, it's almost always a bad idea to try to censor art. Uh, and there's a bunch of other reasons too, that I think are equally compelling that make it the case that it's almost always a bad idea to try to censor it in the actual world. But I do want to push back and say, I, I'm skeptical that both you and Mark are really opposed to censorship in all cases, right? So the thing that the consequentialists like myself can say is to just ramp up how bad the consequences are. Give us your worst case. So suppose Lenny Reconcile is reincarnated and she's going to make another Nazi propaganda film. Suppose she already made another Nazi propaganda film. And suppose that this one is so well done and that the people that would view it are so ignorant and prone to bigotry that they would just be overcome by this film and turn into Nazis and commit another genocide. But there's good news is she doesn't really know how modern film production works. She doesn't really understand you know, how you can save things in the cloud. So there's a single copy of this film that she's made and you have a hammer and all you have to do is bang on the copy of the film and it'll be destroyed forever. And she'll never get the finances to make another film. It just seems quite clear to me that what you ought to do is prevent her from distributing that film. You ought to destroy that film there. And that I think is very clearly a form of censorship. It's very clearly something that you should do. But if you're really opposed to censorship in all cases, independent of how bad the consequences are, then I think you have to say, no, it's fine. It'd be impermissible to prevent her from distributing this film. That seems wacky to me. For the event to work, it requires incredibly dry tinder. In other words, a populace that is ready to lurch, who's going to act in this genocidal manner. And really, given that that's playing so much of the work, the film is playing a small portion of it. Because ordinarily, we don't think that people are automatons, that they're able to watch hateful propaganda and digest it and counter-dialogue it. But I do think, you know, this is the sort of utilitarian dilemma, which is, of course, you can set up any case. And if you then say, well, if what you care about is maximizing the good under these conditions in this particular circumstance, it's obvious that you, I think, would then have to pick the censorship provided you think that the long-term consequences as well will be negative. I think utilitarians cannot ever have absolute positions on particular things because, as you say, you're committed to one line in the sand, which is maximize the good. And the particular facts before you 
are going to lead to very, very different kinds of in practice decisions. Yeah, the utilitarian can't have an absolutist stance on any given action, right? But you might appeal to some, some values other than utility here. You might say, even if the moral thing to do is to destroy that, that single reel of film, it, even if that will result in net positive consequences, given everything, and even in the very long term, you might still think that there's some other countervailing value that perhaps won't outweigh that, but is a countervailing value. And, and that is that you, you're buying into censorship and you're destroying a piece of art or whatever, however you want to phrase it, however you want to cash out that, that competing value. I think the difference between Travis's position and mine is that I take that other value seriously. And I do think that value can outweigh utility in some cases. It's true that the utilitarian for lots of act types can't give a deontic prohibition against them. They can't take an absolute absolutist stance on some broad act types, namely act types that produce the most good and act types that produce suboptimal consequences. And then they give different answers about how to rank the value of the consequences. And the way that people always push back against utilitarians and these sorts of consequentialists is to imagine cases where you have to do something that causes an innocent person to suffer in order to bring about some greater good. And I agree that that's a counterintuitive implication of view. But what's often not discussed is that taking an absolutist stance where you don't pay attention to the goodness and badness of the consequences creates converse, I think, equally, if not more counterintuitive cases where you have to let something morally disastrous happen when it seems like you're not doing something that is a prima facie wrong, or if it is prima facie wrong, that wrongness seems to be clearly outweighed by the badness of the consequences. Which is why I think this is actually a sort of double-edged sword and this argument cuts both ways. And I also think it's worth noting that Mark and Jason, your response is to try to sugar the pill of what I said the implication of review was, was to try to say, well, maybe the consequences won't actually be so bad because maybe there'll be downstream effects of this censorship, right? Or maybe people won't actually be taken by the film. We don't think of them as autons, or if they are, maybe it'll be very easy for someone else to use them for bad purposes. But those are all parts of the, what's factored into the value of the consequences. But the case that I'm imagining is you just know, as a matter of fact, that none of those other bad things are going to happen. There's not going to be any downstream effects where then people try to implement censorship more regularly. That's going to make things worse in the long run. It's not the case that some other person is going to be able to convince these millions of people that would be taken in by Reifen work to be Nazis to do anything else as heinous. It's just censoring one person who's trying to do something really evil in order to prevent another horrific genocide. And in that case, I think the consequentialist, ha the typical consequentialist anyway, has a good response that's not available to use a take more absolutist terms about how we should act. In essence, what you're pointing out is that regardless of your moral position, you've got some bullets to bite. And what you're trying to do is eat as few bullets as possible. 